This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. The worst is over. The encouraging announcement came today from New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, whose state has been the hardest hit by coronavirus. He said, though, the state and its inhabitants would have to be smart and continue to adhere to the restrictions on daily life that most Americans have been living with now for the better part of a month. And there's still plenty of suffering. Another 671 people died Easter Sunday, and the state's coronavirus death toll crossed 10,000. Many more have recovered, including Lori Bacigalupo of Island Park, New York, on the south shore of Long Island. Lucky for you, I kept a journal from day one. We heard about Lori's journal and asked her to join us. Lori, I'm so glad to hear you're through this. Take us back to the start. Sunday night, March 29th, I started to get a cough. And I felt a little feverish, so I was running 99.9 to like 100. So I started to get a little bit nervous. Um, I woke up Monday morning. I had chills, sweats, still the fever. I had nausea, a crazy headache. I was very tired. Um, My aches and pains were unbearable. I couldn't even walk. That's just day one. Did, did you end up having a test? I did pass this series of questions. You know, they say at the end of the questionnaire, okay, someone will contact you. I will tell you to this day, nobody has contacted me. I think getting a test was one of the hardest things, especially when you're sick like this. Who wants to be running around getting a test? When did you finally get the test? Let's go back to um, April 1st. I had all still a lot of crazy... Every day was a new, a new symptom. So it was the bad headaches. I was soaking wet. And the craziest, craziest symptom was that day. It was like everything I breathed in smelled like garbage. And by the next day, I lost all my taste and smell. I could take a bar of Irish Spring soap and practically shove it up my nose and nothing. My son made popcorn. You know what your house smells like when you make popcorn? Sure. Nothing. So that was my confirmation without even getting a test. All, you know, all my friends on the forefront said the smell, the loss of smell is a dead giveaway. Were you isolated in your house? Were you around any of your family members? You know, it's very difficult to be the head of the household. I'm the mom. I'm the wife. Who's doing the laundry? Who's doing the cooking? They can help so much. I have two sons and a husband, and they were very helpful. But at the same time, my nature is to continue to do what I do. So I've been isolated with them for two weeks, pretty much before I had one symptom. So they've already been exposed. Everyone says, isolate yourself to a bedroom. How am I going to do that when I have to make sure the house is clean, the laundry's done? Do you know how you were exposed? Where this came from? I don't really know. You know, the few days before I had a stop at the post office, my son was exposed. We did get a phone call that, you know, where he was, that one of the referees in the arena he was at did did test positive. And then about a week after that, he had 
99.9 and aches and pains for 24 hours. And that was it. He was done. And then my other, my 16-year-old, <laughs> he drank from my open Gatorade the day I found out I was positive. Oh, geez. Um, but he had a cough and just 24 hours and 99.9. But mine, you know, lingered. I finally, you know, I went to day 10. And day 10 was one of the scariest days because everyone says that's where your breathing goes. And I was nervous as all, all heck. You know, it's very scary that day 10. And then by the end, I, I really was, my body was just physically exhausted from day 10 till about day 12. 12 days of this is excruciating. I mean, are you ready to get out of the house now? You may be one of the lucky ones with antibodies. Yes. I, I, I can't wait to just say I'm free. You know, they say three days after your fever, you're good to go. So it's like, when do you really know if you're safe? I, I think you need a few more days because I am seeing lingering symptoms. But yes, I can't wait to be done with this, to be, you know, hey, yay, I'm free. And I, and I would like to, to have them take some of my antibodies if they can and if I can help somebody in any way. Lori Bacigalupo, we're glad you've recovered. We're grateful you've shared your story and her thought now to help others by sharing her antibodies will no doubt be of particular interest to our next guest, Dr. Neil Gaffin at Valley Hospital in Ridgewood, New Jersey, just administered the first dose of convalescent plasma therapy to a COVID-19 patient. Dr. Gaffin, we're excited to hear about it because convalescent plasma therapy has been around for a century. Uh, during the Spanish flu, it's been used in the treatment of measles. Um, it was actually used for the treatment of pneumonia before the advent of antibiotics and subsequently for other viral diseases, including SARS, you know, or in the earlier part of the century, as well as MERS, um, both of which were uh, are coronaviruses. It's not felt to be a cure. Uh, it's felt to be a bridge more to a vaccine as a temporizing measure. And we've infused it in approximately uh, eight or nine people thus far. We are collecting data. So at this juncture, we do not know if this will be beneficial, but because there are no effective therapies for this infection, we're trying everything uh, we can. When do you think you might have some sense as to whether it is effective? Uh, that I wish I could answer, but I don't know yet. And explain, if you would, how it works, because my general layman's understanding is the plasma from someone who has had coronavirus, developed some antibodies, is then effectively injected into someone currently infected in the hope that that boosts their immune system. Right. That, that's actually correct. So we're actually giving, like you said, we're giving antibodies to the person so that they have immunity immediately neutralizing antibodies that is antibodies that you know bind to the virus um, and render it ineffective you know through you know the actions of other mediators in our immune system are felt to be what confers protection uh, we don't know that for certain there are other factors most likely involved uh, the amount of antibody that's necessary uh, is not clear um, but that's sort of what we're going on uh, to, to, you know, to that, that helped us launch this project. Let's assume for the sake of argument, this is successful. 
how easy or difficult is it to replicate on a larger scale? Well, as a as an indicator of that, um, most hospitals who or that are doing this, including Valley, are uh, soliciting donors. They have you know websites up and you know asking for donors. So I could tell you that at least from one institution, ours, the response has been outstanding, incredible, like I've never seen before. Hundreds of people in you know less than a week um, have you know signed up to be uh, potential donors. Is this our best prospect at the at the moment? What's your level of confidence here? I'm hopeful. You know, and it's interesting that you're asking me that because I've thought a lot about this over the last several weeks. I'm an infectious disease doctor, so I don't usually deal with uh, convalescent plasma. I usually deal with antibiotics that were developed after convalescent plasma was in use to treat things before there were antibiotics. So as an infectious disease doctor, I really just think of antibiotics to treat infections. This is a complete change in mentality for me. And it's almost like I'm being, you know, thrown back to the pre-antibiotic era. Um, And because we potentially have something that has been um, not thought about for a long time, particularly in the mainstream. And now we're coming back to something that historically has uh, shown benefit. Back to the future to combat coronavirus. Our thanks to Dr. Neil Gaffin at Valley Hospital in Ridgewood, New Jersey. And coming up, our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, answers your questions about coronavirus. I'm Aaron Katursky, and you're listening to an ABC News special. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. With me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we know over the weekend we heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci who said he was hopeful we could cautiously start doing a few things the way we did before the pandemic. What do we know about this potential return to normalcy? Well, Amy, we ha- we tend to hinge on every word Dr. Fauci says, and for good reason. He is literally a legend in terms of infectious diseases. And at this time, what we know is that there has to be an endpoint. We cannot sustain this degree of social distancing and shutdown forever. But we also know, just based on science and medicine, that if we just rip the Band-Aid off, set a date, and flip a switch, as Dr. Fauci said, if we come back off this too quickly and too abruptly without certain plans and procedures in place, the numbers will go up again. And unfortunately, people will die at higher numbers. So then what do we think will help to get us back to at least some familiar activities? Well, the thought is that it all will hinge on testing to figure out who is susceptible, who is infected, and who has recovered. That widespread and mainstream testing is going to be incredibly important, and that information will be critical. 
if it is accurate, so if the test works, that's one thing we don't really know yet. And the other thing that we don't really know is when we start to open up, or as Dr. Fauci said, this rolling reopening, will it be done based on region, part of the country, or will it be based on certain types of activities and behaviors that will still remain in place and others will be loosened? That's all to be determined. All right. And also to be determined, we do need some clarification on a few things in terms in terms of like when we can start doing all of this, correct? Right. We don't know when. No one has a crystal ball here, Amy. You're hearing estimates like the end of the month, the end of May, June, by fall. No one knows. And that degree of uncertainty is frustrating, but it needs to be acknowledged. And we also don't know where to start. Will this start in big cities? Will it start in rural America? Will it be um, tested in stages? All of this is unknown. And we still do not have a grasp on how helpful this widespread testing will be. All right, Dr. Jen, we will be checking in with you in just a bit. Well, as of today, all but a handful of states have issued stay-at-home orders in an effort to keep people safe during this pandemic. Governors in states originally against the order, like Georgia and Florida, have now joined after the increase of COVID cases there. But eight states, including Arkansas, remain without stay-at-home orders. The governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, is joining us now. And, Governor, I know your state right now has over 1,200 cases, at least 25 deaths, but you stand by your decision to not issue a stay-at-home order. Why? Well, I've never seen Arkansas take a threat more seriously than we take COVID-19. And so our response has been uh, quick. We uh, declared an emergency uh, on the first day of a uh, case that was reported in Arkansas. We've closed our schools, our bars, our restaurants, our state park lodges are closed, uh, our hotel lodging are closed to recreational travels, travelers. And so the list goes on that we have a targeted response that's proven effective in Arkansas. But we don't want to put another 100,000 people out of work unless there's some benefit from closing a particular business. Uh, we have a, a targeted response, as I said. Uh, we are flattening that curve, and we want to make sure we continue to do that. If we see uh, an increase, we're open to every option. But we right now are managing this in a way that really beats the success rate of some other states. I think it's the right response, and it's one that uh, we're emphasizing masks, and that's how they're taking it seriously. Whenever they get out, they can't socially distance, they're wearing masks. You go to the store, you'll see three-fourths of the people, gloves and masks. That's the kind of response that will help us to go through it in the long term. We don't know how long this is going to last, and I like the approach that we've taken, and I think it's proven uh, somewhat successful to this point. I know that and I know you know Arkansas borders Louisiana, which has one of the highest COVID cases in the country. Does that concern you at all, especially in cities like Little Rock that have higher density issues? Uh, that's right. It does. I mean, we have both in Tennessee and the Memphis area, as well as in uh, Louisiana, higher uh, uh, percent of cases and new cases than we see in Arkansas. And so we're trying to make sure that uh, we don't have those kind of travelers that are coming in. We're taking those kind of targeted measures. Our biggest concern right now actually is in our prison uh, facility, both the federal prison, but we've had some in our state prison as well. And we've had a uh, uh, no-visit uh, rule in place for some time, but that's something that we have to have a very specific targeted response for that we're working on right now. 
All right, Governor Asa Hutchinson, we certainly hope you and uh, your fellow Arkansans uh, stay safe. Thank you. The nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, says the economy could have a rolling re-entry in parts of the country as early as next month, provided health officials can identify and isolate people likely to get sick. Here to give us his take on the economic debate is the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT, who also served as an advisor for the Affordable Care Act, Jonathan Gruber. Thanks for being with us today. And as an economics professor, what are your impressions of the initial government stimulus package? I think the stimulus package was actually pretty good along a lot of dimensions. Most importantly was the money given individuals through both the $1,200 check per adult and the expansion of unemployment insurance benefits to make sure that people can, can meet their needs. Look, right now, this isn't a stimulus package. Think of the economy as a patient in a coma. We don't want to wake that patient up until we have a cure. Uh, right now, we just have to keep the patient alive. And that's a lot of what that first stimulus package tried to accomplish. Yeah, so what do you think the priority should be for the next round of stimulus? I think for the next round of stimulus, we need to focus on the healthcare sector and those losing health insurance. On the healthcare sector, the first round did include a $100 billion rescue fund for healthcare providers. We need much, much more than that. We need ways to distribute it to healthcare providers that are hurting the most, like those safety net providers that deal with the uninsured. And we need to focus on the millions of people who are going to lose their health insurance and paying for the care they need. We've got a situation where the we start with 20 million uninsured people. That number is going to rise by several million at least. We need to make sure those people have access to health insurance. We need the Affordable Care Act to be as strong as possible in this moment of need. Now, Jonathan, there's a lot of debate, which I know you know, about when we can reopen our country. What are your feelings about how we can end the lockdown? How can we get the economy going again? Um, basically, the key point is that we can't equate flatten the curve purely with quarantine. If you just end quarantine, and go back to life as normal, you don't flatten the curve. You just delay the peak. If we literally end on May 1st and say, hey, everybody go back to what you were doing, we're going to have the same huge number of deaths, hundreds of thousands of deaths just three months later. We have to follow the quarantine with efforts to continue to slow the progress of the disease. What does that mean? That means vigilant testing. That means contact tracing, where we make sure we take those who are infected and trace who they were in touch with and get them out of, uh, get them quarantined. That may mean periodic shutdowns of the economy. This will not end in a fundamental way until we have a vaccine that's widely disseminated. This doesn't end on May 1st. This ends when we have a vaccine. Until that point, we have to continue to be vigilant or we're going to have hundreds of thousands of deaths. Yeah, and we've already learned so many painful lessons to date. But what changes do you think our country needs to make long term so that we can better prepare for future issues like the coronavirus? I think the most important thing long term is to recognize that we need investments in science and research that aren't necessarily in the interest of profit maximizing companies. In my book, Jumpstarting America with Simon Johnson, we talk about how the US, used, the U.S. government used to lead the way in research and development. We used to spend about 2% of our entire economy on government-sponsored R&D, and that's what led to great discoveries like vaccines. Now it's less than 0.6%. The private sector companies, they don't want to invent the new max vaccine. There's just not that much money to be made out of it. We need the government to lead the way in promoting the research and development that will protect us. Vaccines, investments in our energy grid. We see whatever is staying at home and over to the internet how much we need better energy and blue and uh, and uh, broadband connectivity. These are investments that the government needs to lead uh, for the long term future.
All right. Very, very interesting. Jonathan Gruber, thank you so much for your insight and expertise. We appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. And coming up next right here, when we come back, Dr. Jen with answers to your questions about COVID-19 and the nurse hitting the road to meet the crisis, traveling a long distance to help comrades in the state that is hardest hit. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Well, Dr. Jen Ashton joins us again with answers to your questions about the dangers of coronavirus. Dr. Jen, we'll start with the first one. Do we know if the severity of younger victims with COVID-19 virus has been linked to vaping? Short answer, we don't know yet. Remember, the virus is just about four months old, so we're still in the stage of observation and accumulating and compiling the data based on cases, not just confirmed cases, but hospitalized cases cases and more severe cases. But we do know that something like smoking or vaping absolutely can affect lung tissue, lung function. We know from studies on influenza that it increases the risk of flu. So how or if it's related to people who are getting sick with COVID-19, we still have to learn. Do you know if any data is being collected of patients' blood types correlating to the seriousness of symptoms and or recovery time? Great question. So a small study out of China, they looked at about 2,100 people. This has not yet been peer-reviewed or published um, in a peer-reviewed journal, but they did look for association between blood type and susceptibility for COVID-19. And what they found was that people with type A blood had a higher risk or likelihood of getting sick with COVID-19, whereas people with type O blood, which we call the universal donor, had a significantly lower risk. Now, some qualifiers. We think that's because of the antibodies that are present in our blood with certain blood types to other blood types. But we don't know what kind of clinical relevance this will have since you can't change your blood type. So may it be used for healthcare workers to help stratify their risk? We don't know. But right now, it's just an initial and very preliminary observation. All right. Our next question, Jen. Has there been thought of returning to cloth gowns and masks? There has been. And in fact, the FDA just issued guidelines on laundering cloth gowns. They are giving the hospitals the option of doing so. We have heard recently that hospitals are starting to use vaporized hydrogen peroxide to sanitize those N95 respirators. But certainly cloth gowns, as long as they're not being used for sterile surgery, uh, the FDA has given the green light for hospitals to launder them with standard hospital disinfectants. So that's hopefully some good news. Yeah, certainly. All right. So our next question, and a lot of people have underlying conditions and are curious about how that's going to impact them. I have MS and also take a med that's an immunosuppressant that says I'm prone to get infections easily. What does that mean to me in relation to COVID-19? Short answer, Amy, it means that that person is at increased risk of not just COVID-19, but a range of other opportunistic infections or just regular community-acquired infections. And we have to remember, we heard about those vulnerable pre-existing medical conditions like heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, cancer. But there are so many people with compromised or weakened immune systems, people living with HIV, people who have had a form of transplant, people with autoimmune conditions or MS. The 
list goes on and on. Pregnancy is an immune-compromised condition. So we have to remember to think more broadly as we study various populations to really understand what their risk is to this disease. All right. Well, thank you so much for your insights, Dr. Jen. And you can submit your questions to Dr. Ashton on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. Well, after hearing New York City's call for help for healthcare workers to fight the growing coronavirus pandemic, one nurse traveled from his home in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, to help out. Luke Adams, a registered nurse for 11 years, is joining us now to share his story. First of all, thank you, Luke, for all that you do and continue to do. But what made you say, hey, I have to go to New York City, I have to go there, and I, and I need to help? I think every emergency or crisis calls on a different service, you know, when a hurricane hit FEMA goes in, if a war comes, the military goes in, and it just so happened that this particular crisis uh, was a respiratory disease that required critical care knowledge, and there's just not a whole lot of people out there who have that, and so it became very clear pretty quickly that people like myself were going to be in dire need, and at that point, you know, it was just impossible to kind of turn away and say, oh, no, I'm not going to go help, so packed everything up and came. Yeah, you packed everything up and came and had nowhere to stay. In fact, I understand you slept in the back of your car on a crib mattress for nine days. I'm hoping you now have a place to stay. Yes, actually, I'm talking to you from the comforts of my hotel room, which the city of New York was nice enough to set up for me. But how remarkable that you that you came here with willing to sleep in your car. And I know that you, you know, nurses, doctors, they're all being pushed to extreme limits. Uh, but you can see some positivity in all of this. Share with us what that is, because a lot of people need to hear that positivity. Sure. I mean, I think first and foremost is that there's a heightened, you know, appreciation of the things that now matter. You know, we kind of all go through life. Sometimes we're all guilty of that and we lose sight of the things that are most important. But when you're faced with an emergency, all that kind of gets stripped down to what really is important. And suddenly things like just being able to go home, or hug your children, or sleep next to your spouse. Um, These are the things that, you know, a lot of times we take for granted, and now they're becoming really important. The kindness from strangers, uh, you know, and the the willingness of the recipients to then pay it forward. You know, we kind of forget that it does feel really good to give, and everybody is giving right now, and it feels good. Uh, In terms of the medical community, some of the positives are, you know, the the doctors and nurses that are part of this, whether you're training, whether you've been in practice, uh, we're learning things that, or we're learning to adapt to things that we never have before. And because of that, we're going to be, you know, much better at our job. Yeah. And and you mentioned the little things that that we all should remember, like being able to sleep next to your spouse or hug your children. You're far away from your family and you have an eight-year-old and a 10-month-old. What do you hope they learn from you doing something so brave and selfless to help others? Just uh, again, and I've said this before, if you have the ability to help others, I think that you have the responsibility to help, especially in something as serious as this, um, where I can't just look to my left or my right and pick out a person and say, you go instead. So for me, the most important thing was I can't ask everybody else to sacrifice if I'm not willing to do it myself. And, you know, certainly... From those of us on the front line, we're asking the rest of America to sacrifice and stay home, and that's very difficult. So in order to be able to ask them to do that, I felt like I had to sacrifice. And so, you know, mine is not being able to see my kids or hug them or sleep next to my spouse. But I want them to know that those sacrifices really, uh, 
they don't mean as much as uh, you know no, grow, going through the rest of your life knowing that you didn't help when you could. That will stand out more than the three months that we've been apart from each other. Well, Luke Adams, I know that we are all so grateful that there are people like you in the world willing to sacrifice so much. Stay safe and please send your family love from us. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you very much. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. At a time when we are redefining parenting and relationships because of the pandemic, some parents are finding unique ways to make it work like Wayne Brady and his family bonding on social media. Wayne, thanks for being with us. The videos you're making with your family lighting up the Internet. Is the quarantine, has it brought, it, brought you guys closer together? Um, yes and no. Yes, we spend more time together. But in terms of being, being close, we, we have that bond um, just in life. Uh, the, the, the four of us, my ex-wife Mandy and, and my daughter Miley and uh, Mandy's boyfriend Jason, we kind of have that silly, close, bonded family nature anyway. So this this just gives us more time to spend together. What's What's been the biggest challenge for you as a co-parent? I think the challenge is, of course, our proximity. We're, we're very lucky that we share one daughter among two homes, and our homes are basically next door to each other. So we're quarantining between our two homes. So trying to give each other space... That's been the biggest problem. But I think as a, as a dad to a 17-year-old, the secret is not to crowd them because <laughs> we're all going through it right now, right? But the teenagers, especially high schoolers, they, they, they have this uh, schedule and they have a, um, a social uh, grouping and they have a life. And the way that they respond to this has uh, needs a bit of sensitivity. So I had to teach myself that to not just jump on her and say, oh, I want to hang out with you all day, and Dad's going to kiss you, and we're going to be best friends. Like, like whoa, Dad, back up. Back well, up a little it, bit. It's funny you say that, because I have a 17-year-old daughter, and we've got three teenagers in the house, too, and I found myself being the same way, and I got a lot of eye rolling. So uh, give me your best advice on, <laughs> <laughs> on other parents with children in split households trying to co-parent, especially if they're teenagers, while isolating. What's your best advice? Trying to co-parent, it's a lot of work. And what people see is the end result, especially when I'm dating or in life or anything. People see, oh, you guys are close. We've been in each other's lives for about 24 years. We have lots of history, and a lot of it has been an uphill climb. But we wanted to keep our relationship intact because of our friendship mm-hmm. and our love for each other and, and to model a healthy example of what love can be after the I do's are over because she sees that I respect her mother to to the nth degree and the same going the other way. So at that point, she sees a healthy relationship. So that's what, what we try to model. So right now, the, the best thing that we can do is just give each other space when needed and give each other love, love when needed. So when she wants to do a TikTok video, we do a TikTok <laughs> video. We just can't force it on her because the other day she said, she said, you know, I don't, don't want these to not become fun because because we have to do that. <laughs> so we're like, okay, okay, mom, mom and dad will back off. Yeah, we, we're, we're learning from our teenagers too. Hate to say it, but it's true. Amen. Wayne Brady, thank you so much for being with us today and stay safe. Thank you too. 
And now final thoughts from our Dr. Jen Ashton. Jen, you and I have talked a lot about exercising while we're in quarantine. And I've certainly noticed people out on these uh, very rural running paths that I'm on. But every now and then I will see someone running with a mask on. What are your thoughts about that? Well, Amy, I've been getting a lot of questions about this uh, on social media because people are trying to follow the recommendations from the CDC of wearing some kind of face covering when they're outside. But at the same time, people who are exercise fanatics or just trying to go outside once a day for some exercise are confused whether they need to wear a mask while running, biking or walking. If so, does it make it better, harder, worse? Interesting, interesting topic. So a couple of things. Number one, distance is important. So if you live in an area where your running path or walking path or bike path is packed with people, absolutely, you need to wear some kind of mask or face covering. The fit and the fabric potentially do play a role. But remember, there's a difference between wearing a mask when you're just at work or, you know, going grocery shopping. And when you're actually breathing vigorously, in some cases, it can make that harder. Um, There can be skin reactions as the mask gets wet with sweat and condensation just from our respiration. And in some cases, professional athletes will say, well, it actually gives you a little bit of an exercise stress test and can make the exercise a little more strenuous. But again, we have to caution, you do have to be able to move air through that mask. So get something that fits well, get something that you can wear, and don't assume that just because you're on a bike path, you don't need to cover your face. If you can leave your home, go outside for a jog, a bike ride, a walk, while keeping socially distanced, six feet or more apart, while wearing a face covering, do some stuff in your apartment or your house, like push-ups, planks, squats, bands. I know it will make us feel better body and mind. Oh, preach, 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 Jen. That's exactly what we've been doing, too. And thank you for those very important words, because it does make a huge difference. And the familiar voice helping us through these strange times. When we come back, a brand new anthem from Pitbull. He joins us next. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. And that is Pitbull's new single, I Believe That We Will Win. And during this time of uncertainty, Mr. Worldwide himself hopes the catchy anthem will spread a worldwide message of hope and inspiration. Grammy Award winning artist Pitbull joins us now to talk about it. Pitbull, thanks for being with us. And first of all, how did you come up with the idea for this song? Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. And second of all, to everybody out there, God bless the first responders and and to everybody that's, that's dealing with this right now. What do we come up with the record? Bottom line is to motivate the planet and let everybody know that I believe that we will win and we will. And more than anything, I want to make sure that everybody out there stays healthy, stays safe, stays blessed, stays strong, stay positive, stay informed, stay educated, because we're living in very interesting times right now. We certainly are. And the lyrics in this song are incredibly inspiring. In fact, some of them give new meaning to the word fear. Well, the word fear You can either forget everything and run, or you can fear, face everything and rise. And we're going to face everything and rise. That's why I started the record with that right there. And that was a record that was shown to me by someone that are very, very close to me, that 
showed it to me. And it was a, it was a chance at a basketball game. Everybody was losing their mind, and I said, "Oh man, this is what the world needs right now. Where they just need to, you know, stay strong, be strong, but more than anything, you got to believe in yourself." You know. So with that said, to everybody out there, stay strong, stay positive, stay focused, stay healthy, stay safe. But more than anything, stay informed. Stay aware and educate yourself with everything that's going on right now. Yeah, and I know I've always said that fear either paralyzes you or it motivates you. And I can clearly see it's motivating you. And I love this message of unity in your song because it's also a way to give back. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, absolutely. 100% of the proceeds between um, my partner and myself with Saban Music and his team and with Mr. 305 Inc., me and Hiram Saban spoke and we said, look, 100% of this is going to go to proceeds, proceeds such as, you know, Feeding America with Tony Robinson and his foundation to feed the hungry. You also have, we're going to, from an educational side, we're going to be helping on the educational side of things. And also proceeds will go to, because remember, this isn't the first and it won't be the last where we want to be involved with those that are going to have solutions for these kind of situations in the future. And to the public out there, you know, we need to think uh, the World Health Organization, the John Hopkins University and their numbers, and the Gates Foundation, because they happened to put something together in October 18, 2019, that's called Event 201, which is an actual exercise of what we're going through right now. It's a pandemic simulation pandemic exercise. So these are the kind of things that I would love to be aware of before it happens so we can prepare the public and what we're going through right now. So I'd love for everybody to go check that out and study it. And that's what I mean by being aware, being informed, being educated. So you can make educated decisions in these kind of situations and not scare yourself out of solutions. Very important words to live by. Pitbull, thank you so much for all that you're doing and with your incredibly inspiring song. We appreciate your time today. Hey, same to you. God bless. God bless to the world. And thank you guys so much. I appreciate y'all. That's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.